Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank Bambi for supporting my podcast. You know, HR managers ain't cheap. Salaries average $70,000 a year. Go to Bambi.com slash gold to schedule your free HR audit. Well, today we finally got the jobs numbers. The employment situation for June was released earlier this morning. The expectation was for a gain of 703,000 jobs. And that followed, I think, a disappointing 559,000 jobs from May. Now, they actually did revise that May number up a bit, although I think the prior months were slightly revised to the downside. But June did come in ahead of what had been expected. 850,000 jobs is the number that was restored in the month of June. And again, I like to talk about jobs being restored rather than jobs being created, because these are jobs that we temporarily set aside due to COVID, and now we're simply bringing them back. So it's not really about an economy creating all these new jobs. We're just restoring the jobs that we temporarily eliminated due to COVID. But while the media is focusing on that beat in the headline number, oh, we created 850,000 jobs, so it's a stronger than expected report. When you actually look at the rest of the report, a lot of that strength disappears. And in fact, I think it is a weaker report uh, than the headline would suggest, especially if you look at the unemployment rate, which was supposed to drop 
it was 5.8%. And again, this is the official rate, so it really is meaningless because it doesn't come close to capturing the true degree to which Americans are not working and uh, unemployed. But the official rate was supposed to drop to 5.6%. Not only didn't it drop, it went up. The unemployment rate notched up to 5.9%. That exceeds the upper end of the range of expectations that went from a low of 5.5 to a high of 5.8. So more Americans unemployed. And if you look at the labor force participation rate, which was supposed to improve somewhat from the 61.6% from the prior month, they thought it would tick up to 61.7. Instead, it remained at 61.6. So we are not pulling more people out of the sidelines back into the game when it comes to employment. They are sitting on the sidelines, I guess, collecting their unemployment checks. Manufacturing payrolls also rose less than expected. They were looking for 27,000. We got 15,000. Also, average hourly earnings, while they were up a little less than expected on the month, up 0.3 versus 0.4, the year-over-year rise ended up at 3.6%, which exceeded the 3.4% that was expected. And if you look at what the year-over-year gain was just one month ago, it was just 2%. So we've gone from 2% to 3.6% in one month. Again, more evidence that the inflation is spilling over into the labor market with rising wages, although we didn't have people working longer hours. The average work week actually ticked down to 34.7 from 34.8 versus the expectation uh, that it would be at 34.9, which would have matched the original estimate from the prior month, but it was revised down to 34.8. So actually a miss there too. The consensus was 34.9 and we came in at 34.7. So Americans didn't work as many hours, but it is costing 3.6% more to employ Americans to work fewer hours than what their bosses were paying a year ago. Of course, it's not just labor costs that are going up. Costs are going up across the board. As I'm recording this podcast which is early in the afternoon on Friday, uh, East Coast time, oil is trading at about $75 a barrel. We actually got above 76 yesterday. That was less than a dollar from a new seven-year high in the price of oil. And I've been talking about the upward momentum in the oil price on this podcast. We see no evidence that that is going to stop. It is just a steady climb higher as energy costs I think, are rising as a result of all the inflation. They're not going to cause inflation. They are being caused by inflation. And inflation is going to continue to cause prices to rise across the board. This transitory bout of inflation is going to get a lot worse. But, you know, it wasn't just that this jobs number was weaker than expected. We really got weaker than expected data throughout the week. In fact, we got more data today, not just the jobs number. You know, we also get the trade deficit. And, you know, I don't think it's coincidence that they release the trade deficit every month on the same day that we released the jobs report, because this number is always bad. I mean, it is horrific. And nobody really talks about it because it's released 
simultaneously, not just on the same day, but at the exact same time as the job numbers. And so everybody focuses on the jobs numbers because that's what everybody is anticipating and keying off of. And because everybody is paying so much attention to the job numbers, nobody pays any attention to the trade numbers. And that's exactly what the government wants. They don't want anybody looking at these trade numbers because the trade numbers tell the truth about how bad the U.S. economy is, how malinvested and misallocated our resources are, that we are hemorrhaging all of this red ink. Although the trade deficit for the month of May didn't come out any worse than what was expected, it was exactly as bad as what was expected. The expectation was for a $71.2 billion deficit, and that's exactly what we got, $71.2 billion. Although, who knows, we may end up revising that number up a bit just like we revised the April number up a bit, it was originally reported as a deficit of $68.9 billion. Now they revised it slightly higher to a deficit of $69.1 billion. But again, it is bad news. These huge deficits result from the fact that we're printing a lot of money, but we're not manufacturing a lot of goods. So in order to buy goods with all this printed money, we end up buying the goods that are produced abroad. And the result is a big trade deficit that ultimately is going to put a lot of downward pressure on the dollar and therefore upward pressure on prices. Other data that came out earlier in the week Yesterday and Wednesday, we got construction spending. That was a disappointment. They were looking for a gain of 0.5, which would have followed the 0.2% increase from April. We revised April down to up just 0.1, and the main number was negative 0.3, so way below consensus. And in fact, the year-over-year number went from up 9.8% which was actually upwardly revised to up 11.6, and now it dropped all the way down to up just 7.5%. Look at the ISM manufacturing numbers. Not a big miss, but still a miss. They were looking for 61, and we got 60.6. But the Chicago PMI was a much bigger miss. We had a big number last month in May, a 75.2%. There was the expectation that that would come down a bit to 71. Instead, it came down further to 66.1. So more weaker than expected data. But the data that keeps coming in hotter than expected is the inflation data. If you look at all the prices paid components that are within these reports, they are all hitting some of the highest levels they've been, even if you go all the way back to the 1970s. Now, they haven't really broken through those levels, but we've basically matched those levels where we've seen major peaks in uh, price pressures. Although the difference is, at this point, to me, there seems to be no evidence that we've reached a peak. As far as I'm concerned, we're simply gathering more momentum. The real price increases, I think, are going to start once the dollar really rolls over. Because if you look at the historical points where you've seen this type of price pressure, it happened in an environment of a falling dollar. Well, we're not even in that environment yet. We're seeing all of this price pressure, even though the dollar isn't going down. But once the dollar really starts to go down, then that is going to exert even more upward pressure on prices. Of course, the financial markets really like 
the weak non-farm payroll report because it means that the Fed is going to be even slower at beginning its process of tapering its asset purchases or even slower in the date at which we have liftoff when it comes to raising interest rates above zero, as if any of these things are going to happen anyway. But to the extent that the Fed is saying that it is data dependent and it's waiting to make sure that we have a solid recovery as measured by strength in the labor market. Well, when you see a jump up in the unemployment rate, when you see the labor force participation rate failing to improve so that we're not pulling workers back into the job market, that gives people confidence that whenever that tightening happens, it's going to happen even later rather than somewhat sooner. And so you saw the NASDAQ hitting a new all-time record high. You saw the S&P 500 hitting an all-time record high. The bond market rallied. Interest rates came down a bit because of the idea that the Fed is going to have to be patient even longer. The dollar lost some strength, gold gained a bit, but these moves were relatively small. It seems to me that the markets, when it comes to the foreign exchange market and the gold market, are still unwilling to grasp this reality. They're still trying to factor in that the Fed is going to be tighter than what they once expected months ago before we had all this bluffing. We had Bullard come out and talk about how the Fed is going to start raising rates. And it really changed the narrative and the way a lot of these traders are positioning. Instead of just assuming the Fed is going to stay easy, they've now built this tightening, this tapering sooner rather than later, hiking sooner rather than later into their trade, and it seems like it's taking longer to price this stuff back out. But eventually, the markets are going to realize that this whole thing was a head fake, that they had it right before, that the Fed is going to stay looser for longer, that we shouldn't have moved forward the expectation for when the Fed is going to finally start to hike rates or when the Fed is going to begin to taper. We need to push those expectations back even further. That doesn't mean that the Fed isn't eventually going to raise rates or it isn't eventually going to start shrinking its balance sheet, but it's not going to be because the Fed wants to. It's going to be because the Fed has to, because the Fed has no choice. They are never going to deliberately pull the rug out from under the economy, out from under the markets. They're going to do everything they can to keep the air from coming out of this bubble. And so when we finally do get that interest rate move up, it's going to be in reaction to a crisis. It's going to be because inflation is already such an enormous problem that it is damaging the economy and it is damaging the dollar to the point where the Fed finally feels that the price of doing something about it outweighs the cost of doing nothing about it, which is what they're doing now. Personally, I think it's going to take a lot before the Federal Reserve has the courage to actually do something like that. But that's not even on the radar. Most people who are assuming that when the Fed eventually raises rates or tapers, they think they're going to be doing it when the economy is strong They don't realize that they're going to be doing it when the economy is weak. And in fact, a lot of the people are also drawing comfort from this weaker employment data, and it's helping to drive the false narrative of transitory inflation. 
because a lot of people simply equate higher inflation with more employment. And so if more people aren't working, the idea is, well, that's going to take the pressure off of inflation. And in fact, this weaker than expected jobs report is simply more evidence that the Fed has got it right and that inflation is transitory. What they don't realize is that we're actually going to get much more inflation than the markets expect but a weaker labor market than the markets expect. It is stagflation. And so when the Fed is ultimately forced to tighten monetary policy, it's going to do it into a weakening economy, into a weakening labor market, not a strengthening labor market. And of course, it's going to be too little too late. It is not going to work. The only way it would work is if the degree to which the Fed tightened was something akin to what Paul Volcker did. The problem is we can't even come close to affording even a fraction of what Volcker did because of the enormity of the debt as compared to what the debt was back then. And more important, not just how much we owe, but the short maturities of what we owe. Because back in the 1970s, early 1980s, most of this government debt was financed 20 to 30 years. And so even though Volcker was jacking up interest rates, it affected the cost of what the government was borrowing at the time, not the cost of what they had already borrowed in the past. But if the Federal Reserve has to get medieval on inflation and really jack up interest rates, not only is that going to impact the cost of financing the current deficits, but it's going to impact the cost of refinancing all the prior deficits as all that short-term paper matures. And you're talking about paper that was issued when interest rates were at zero. And if now it matures and interest rates are 5 or 10% or higher, then the cost of servicing that debt explodes just as the cost of all the new debt explodes. And it is a perfect storm. There will be no place to take refuge. And that's why I think the Fed will do everything it can to delay doing that, which means you've got tremendous downside in the U.S. dollar. And at some point, the markets will understand this. And then you're going to see a different reaction, in particular in the foreign exchange market and in the precious metals market. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you're running a business, it's the HR issues that can kill you. They're like little landmines and you step on one and you blow up the whole company. You know, wrongful termination suits, discrimination, sexual harassment, minimum wage, overtime. There's all sorts of labor regulations and those HR manager salaries ain't cheap 
an average of $70,000 a year. That's where Bambi comes in, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E. It was created specifically for small businesses. Now you can get a dedicated HR manager that'll craft your HR policy and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to one of your biggest strengths. You get a dedicated HR manager who is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. For everything from onboarding to terminations, they'll customize your policies to fit your business, and they'll help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month. And it's month-to-month, there's no hidden fees, and you can cancel anytime. Just go to Bambi.com gold right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi spelled B-A-M to the B-E-E dot com slash gold. And of course, one of the commodities that's going to see the most upward pressure on price is going to be gold. Now, up until now, nobody seems to be paying attention to the gold market because everybody is paying attention to the Fed and what the Fed is saying rather than what the Fed is doing. And they're still wedded to this narrative of transitory inflation, of inflation that's under control. So they don't necessarily understand why they need to be hedging against inflation. And in fact, when it comes to oil, I think a lot of this belief in the transitory nature of what we're seeing is really going to work against the oil price coming down because a lot of people simply assume that as oil prices move higher and higher, that at some point all this new production is going to come on stream. It's going to be attracted by the higher prices. And so there's some limit to how high prices can go because then we're going to have this big increase in supply because all this drilling is going to return to the market. But remember, if everybody is convinced that what we're seeing in oil is transitory and that these price gains aren't going to stick, well, then nobody is going to be willing to finance the cost of drilling because the drillers need money. Investors aren't going to put up the money if they don't expect these high prices to persist. If everybody believes that the price is going to roll over and fall, uh, they don't want to get burned again the way they got burned the last time. Investors lost a lot of money when oil prices were over $100 a barrel back in 2012 and 13 and 14. They put a lot of money into fracking and then the price collapsed and the losses were horrific. People are very gun shy to the extent that they even have the capital to risk about risking it again given how badly they got burned before. And in fact, the banks don't want to lend into the energy sector, given how much money they've already lost on oil loans gone bad. They're not going to do it. They don't even have the savings. Most of whatever the banks have is going to the government, going to the mortgage market, going to finance consumption, credit cards, autos, stuff like that. There is no credit available to go to the energy sector, nor do the banks want to take the risks of lending to the energy sector. And by the way, not only are oil prices going up, but the cost of drilling is also going to go up. Inflation is driving up costs all across the board. So all these people who are simply expecting the increase in supply to take care of the problem of higher oil prices are completely wrong. And also, you've got to look at the environmental concerns, the fact that we now have an administration that is very anti-oil and gas and is going to further increase the cost of exploring and drilling. So we've got a long way to go up 
in the price of gasoline. I'm looking at uh, prices now for just the basic unleaded, I think is like $3.10 or three twenty, something like that is the national average. Of course, some people are paying more than that. But I wouldn't be surprised if a year from now, Americans are paying $5 a gallon or more uh, for regular unleaded gasoline. And I bet that even if that is the case, the Federal Reserve is still going to be clinging to the myth that all this inflation is transitory. But believe me, the higher energy prices are going to show up more than just at the gasoline pump, you know, because energy is an input that is used across the board. A lot of other goods and services require energy to produce or to deliver. And of course, all these goods require energy to transport them, not only to transport them to the United States, but to transport them throughout the United States once they arrive at a port. So this is going to feed through into higher prices. But I think it's not going to be until the prices are much higher than that that the markets finally come to terms with the fact that the Fed was completely wrong on its belief that inflation was transitory. And what is actually transitory is the Fed's reputation, which will be shattered once it's proven that the Fed has no idea what's happening with inflation. Either that or they're just deliberately lying about what's happening with inflation. They will have no more credibility when it comes to monetary policy. And once they've lost their credibility, then they have no more ability uh, to really conduct monetary policy and the dollar falls through the floor. You know, one of the factors that a lot of people have been asking me to comment on have to do with these new changes uh, to the rules for gold that are contained within this Basel III agreement in Europe, which really, I think, kicked in on Monday. I don't know if it's fully kicked in yet, but just started. And the significance of the new rules, at least when it comes to gold that is held on the balance sheets of banks, is that gold in physical form that you have possession of is going to move up from a tier three asset to a tier one asset. Now, tier one is the highest quality of assets that banks can have as part of their capital. And the tier one assets, there is no haircut that the banks are required to take on the value of that capital. What a haircut is when it comes to accounting is that you have to reduce the value of a particular asset that you're carrying on your books due to volatility or liquidity or the fact that you could have an asset and the price can drop. And so you have to take uh, some type of reduction in its value to the point that you want to account that as part of your bank capital. And so now if banks have gold, they're not going to have to reduce the value of that gold. They can carry it on their books at its true market value without the haircut. This only applies, though, to gold that is held in allocated form. So the bank has to have the actual bars or coins in its possession, or it has to have it stored, allocated with a third party, but the gold can't be commingled. It has to actually be in a separate vault or in a place in a vault where the particular coins that they own or bars, those serial numbers are known and they are specific to that financial institution. So what that means is if a bank owns gold through some derivative instrument or if they own their gold through an unallocated pooled environment, that gold is still a tier three asset, not a tier one asset subject to the haircut or other requirements. So the question is, is this going to impact the price of gold? 
are a lot of banks going to now start moving their gold from unallocated to allocated? And will this push the price of gold up? Now, first of all, what just happened with Basel III is not new. So it's not like the banks didn't know this was coming. So my feeling is any changes to their allocation that may have resulted from this change in accounting, I think banks have already prepared for that. And so I don't think there's going to be any major adjustments to the price of gold right now based on this change. But I do believe it will have a positive impact on gold in the future as more and more banks start to feel that inflation is a real threat and they look for other ways to hedge that on their balance sheets. I mean, right now they're content to hold bonds or government bonds that are also tier one assets. Yeah, they don't really pay a lot of yield, but if you compare it to the cost of storing the gold now, because if you want to have physical gold and you want to actually store it on an allocated basis, there is a cost to doing that. There's a cost to fabricating the bars and coins. There's a cost to transporting them. There's a cost of storing them. So all of that has to be weighed against the cost of maybe a negative yield on a sovereign bond that also doesn't have a haircut attached to it. But as banks really start to appreciate the degree to which inflation is not transitory and how the value of their paper assets are going to erode substantially over time, then more and more banks are going to look for an inflation hedge And the fact that they don't have to haircut the value of their gold will make gold look more attractive as an asset for banks to hold on their balance sheets. So I do believe that in the future, not necessarily right now, but maybe six months from now, a year from now, as the perception changes from transitory inflation to permanent inflation to permanent inflation that's getting worse, now you have a greater incentive for these banks to buy gold and the government now has made it easier for the banks to own gold. And at that point, I think the benefits of actually having the physical allocated gold may outweigh the cost savings of having the derivative contracts or non-allocated metal where it's going to be a tier three asset. So this could put more upward pressure or a premium for having actual physical gold rather than these alternative ways that people own gold. Also, I want to call everybody's attention to a new YouTube video that was just posted on my YouTube channel. And by the way, if you're not yet a subscriber to my YouTube channel, make sure and subscribe and encourage your friends to subscribe as well and to tell their friends to subscribe. This particular video is the second Peter Schiff was right video, somebody came out with this one as a CNBC edition. It was a follow-up to the original Peter Schiff was right video. That particular video featured almost exclusively clips of my interviews from Fox News. There was one, I think, CNBC interview in there, but everything else was from Fox News. They actually were taken from these Saturday business programs that were on. There's a two-hour time block, and there were four different half-hour shows, and I was frequently invited to be a guest 
on those shows to kind of be the token bear to balance out all the other bulls and everybody would make fun of me. And because of that and because how many people made fun of me, it was great footage for the ultimate Peter Schiff was right video. So that video really showed a disproportionate amount of clips from Fox News, which I believe maybe pissed off some of the producers on Fox News, which is why I'm no longer invited on those programs. I haven't been on in years. In fact, I think now they just have one two-hour live show on Saturdays hosted uh, by Neil Cavuto. I'm not really sure, but they stopped inviting me on years and years ago. And maybe it had something to do with the fact that they were pissed off at me for this Peter Schiff was right video that really uh, concentrated on Fox News and a lot of their guests and, and hosts. And of course, I had nothing to do with the production of that video. It was made by, by a fan and that person selected those clips. But then another fan decided that CNBC needed to be more heavily scrutinized. And so he put together, or she, I really have no idea who did it, another video, Peter Schiff was right, the CNBC edition. And we've never actually posted that one to my channel. You know, I did get around to a couple of years ago posting a version of the original Peter Schiff was right because the actual original Peter Schiff was right that had millions of views. The guy who put that up eventually took it down. I have no idea why he decided to take it down from YouTube, but he did. Uh, so I put one up on my channel just so it would still be there. And the reason that we decided to put this one up is I have been uh, pretty critical of CNBC recently. I mean, they haven't had me on any of their programs in years. At least Fox News still has me on. I mean, maybe they don't have me on those shows, but I've been going on Tucker Carlson now for a while. I've done Fox Business uh, with Liz Clayman, with... Charles Payne. Uh, so I am still, you know, invited. I'm persona non grata over at CNBC. But the real reason I wanted to highlight these old interviews from CNBC is to just show how close we could be to a major crisis. In this case, or back in uh, 2006 and seven, where these clips are from, the global financial crisis and the bursting of the housing bubble. So I was going on CNBC arguing with all of the hosts, arguing with all of their regular guests and contributors about this huge problem that I saw underlying the U.S. economy, that we had this huge housing bubble and that when it popped, we were going to have a financial crisis. We were going to have a horrible recession uh, that would not just be quarters, but years. I mean, the worst recession since the Great Depression. I pretty much laid it out cold. And even though we were very close to the beginning of that crisis, I mean, some of these clips were taken from periods where the subprime bubble already popped, where we were, in fact, already in the beginning of what became known as the Great Recession. Yet none of the other guests or their hosts could see there was a problem. I mean, even with subprime rearing its ugly head, they were still very dismissive of the threat that it represented, not only to the subprime market, but to the mortgage market, to the overall economy. I mean, there's this one guest, a Diana Swank, who is an economist by profession, right? She is a senior economist. She was with Mesereau back then. 
She's with Grant Thornton now. But I think it's particularly funny because I was talking about a lot of the structural problems in the economy, the lack of competitiveness of U.S. companies. And Diana Swamp interrupted me to ask me if I'd ever been to Detroit and have I taken a tour of a GM plant. She was talking about how wonderful GM was, how she's friendly with management. They're doing a great job and it's fantastic. And she doesn't know where I'm coming from with my criticism. And two and a half years later, GM actually went bankrupt as a result of the problems that I was forecasting. They had to get bailed out by the US government. That's how inefficient the company actually was. Yet this economist completely oblivious, of course, Diana Swank is still a regular on CNBC, as clueless now as she was back then, but even more important than their lack of understanding of the problems at General Motors was their lack of understanding of all the problems underlying the U.S. economy, not understanding the damage that was being done by the easy monetary policy that was in place at the time. And of course, the monetary policy is far easier now, doing even more damage than it was back then. But nobody on CNBC could understand this. And in fact, if anybody came on CNBC and suggested that everything wasn't as rosy as they believed, well, they made fun of them, they laughed at them. And so the point is, if you are expecting any of these so-called experts who are regulars on financial networks like CNBC to warn you of an impending crisis, it is never going to happen. That is impossible. They do not understand the problems that underlie the economy. They don't understand the damage that is being done by Fed policy. In fact, these guys believe everything the Fed says. So when Ben Bernanke was out there coming on CNBC in 2005, 2006, 2007, telling everybody nothing to worry about, everything is great, subprime is contained, they believed him and they laughed at people like me who said that the Fed was wrong. In fact, at this point, they don't even have people like me on. So there's nobody left to laugh at. You know, there are a lot of people I noticed in the comments section, people are looking forward to another Peter Schiff was right video that it'll be even better than the last couple. But that's not going to happen because we don't have the footage. What made these Peter Schiff was right videos so entertaining was not the stuff that I got right. But was everybody else getting it so wrong? And the fact that those people who were so wrong were so positive they were right that they made fun of me or laughed at me or wanted to bet me that I was wrong. That's what made the video so good. That footage is missing. All we can have now is clips really of me uh, from my podcast warning about these problems. But you're never going to get warnings from CNBC because they the bulls that are routinely on that network, those are the stop clocks. See, they always want to say, well, the reason that I was able to predict the 2008 financial crisis was because I'm always predicting a crisis and therefore I'm a stop clock and therefore I'm eventually bound to be right, right, at least twice a day. And so I guess the second time I'm going to be right is on the next crisis. But because I understand the dynamics at play. Because I understand the malinvestments and the problems that have resulted from monetary policy and artificially low interest rates doesn't mean I'm a stop clock. All it means is I'm able to see these problems 
and warn about them in advance. There's no way to know exactly when the boiling point is, when all of these problems that I am correctly identifying result in a crisis, when the whole thing blows up. You don't know, right? How many straws can we pile on this camel's back before the camel breaks? We don't know. I don't know how many. I just know that if we keep putting them on there, eventually it's going to happen. The stop clocks don't see it. They don't see the problem. And so that's why they're always bullish. Everything is fine. Everything is perfect, right? It's all awesome. There's nothing to worry about. And then if something does happen that they didn't anticipate, well, anybody who was warning about it, they're the stop clocks and they'll claim that no legitimate forecaster or economist could have possibly understood this. Nobody could have predicted it came completely out of left field. You know, one of my favorite little clips in this Peter Schiff was right video is the late Mark Haynes when I'm warning about this housing bubble. And one of the reasons Mark Haynes is so dismissive of the fact that there could even possibly be a housing bubble was because we just had a stock market bubble less than 10 years earlier that popped. And it seems completely incredulous to Mark Haynes that we can have two huge bubbles so close to each other when bubbles like this only happen every 100 years. And what Mark Haynes didn't understand is that the Federal Reserve created the stock market bubble with its monetary policy. And it was the same monetary policy that was still being used that had inflated the real estate bubble. In fact, that's all that happens. Whenever the Fed's bubbles pop, they simply return to the very monetary policy that inflated them in the first place and then inflate an even bigger bubble, creating an even bigger problem, which will only manifest itself when the bigger bubble pops. But the so-called experts never recognize this. They don't understand the damage that the Fed is doing. They still think the Fed is putting out fires. They don't realize that the Fed is lighting the very fires that they're claiming credit for putting out, but they never really put them out, right? Because they're pouring gasoline on them, not water. And so they always come back bigger than ever. Also look at Don Luskin on the Kudlow Show. After I'm talking about the subprime problems after we've already seen the market blow up and I'm talking about the ramifications from what's happening, Luskin interrupts and says, so what? The skeleton's out of the closet. No big deal. Nothing bad has happened. So when are you going to stop warning about a catastrophe, about a crisis? You're wrong. Everything is great. These guys were in complete denial. It didn't even matter how much evidence was staring them in the face. They were still blind to it. It the crisis had to already happen. You had to have the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers. You had to have all these financials completely imploding before any of these people recognized that there was a problem to worry about. And it's going to be the same thing this time. They are not going to see any crisis coming in advance. It's only going to be after the fact that they're finally going to acknowledge that there's a problem. And of course, they're going to ask the Fed to solve it. But how can the Fed solve the problem that it created? How can the Fed put out that fire with more gasoline? It can't. In fact, at this point, they're going to need so much gasoline because the fire is already so big that they're just going to fry the entire country to a cinder. So if I'm right, 
if what we're looking at now is a much bigger crisis than the financial crisis that we had in 2008, if this is going to be a currency crisis and ultimately a sovereign debt crisis, the order of magnitude is much greater. In fact, the only way the Fed can avoid a currency crisis and a sovereign debt crisis is to deliberately create a financial crisis that's far worse than the one that we had in 2008 and allow it to proceed without any bailouts. Because the only way to bail out the people who go broke in the next financial crisis is to destroy the dollar. They have to print even more money. But the reason they're deliberately bringing on that crisis is to prevent the currency crisis from happening. That's why they can't be honest now. That's why they can't admit that inflation is intransitory because to make that admission means they have to do something about the inflation, but they can't do anything about the inflation without creating a worse financial crisis than the one we had in 2008. So their initial response is to pretend that there's no inflation problem to solve so they don't have to cause that crisis. But that's only going to work for a certain amount of time. At some point, the markets are going to realize what the Fed is doing. They're going to realize that inflation isn't transitory, that it's here to stay. But what is going to be the real aha moment for the markets when the dollar really tanks and gold really takes off? It's not just when people come to the realization that inflation isn't transitory, when they realize that not only is it not transitory, but that it's going to get much, much worse because there's absolutely nothing the Federal Reserve can do to stop it from getting worse. So that is when gold takes off because right now everybody expects hey, if inflation does rear its head, the Fed is going to quickly put out that fire. The Fed is going to raise interest rates and nip the inflation in the bud. Well, the time to do that has long since passed. So all they're doing now is they're in denial of the inflation. Again, then they're going to try to convince us that inflation is good for us. And initially, I think when they fail to take any corrective action on inflation, it's going to be because they claim that they're not willing to sacrifice the economy on the altar of low inflation. They're going to claim that They can't throw people out of work. They can't create a recession. They can't somehow add to the income inequality in the economy by going after this inflation monster. And that the ideas in the past that we needed low inflation, well, they're outdated. And we're now just going to have higher inflation. And it's simply the price that we pay for prosperity. We're not going to deliberately slow down a growing economy simply because we're going to be stubborn and cling to these ideas of the past that inflation needs to be 2%. What's wrong with 4% or 5%? It's not worth the cost of fighting it. And somehow they'll claim that the problem will take care of itself. It's never going to take care of itself. You have to take care of yourself by insulating yourself from this inflation tax. Now, I think at some point when the dollar's weakness becomes so pronounced, when we are at the point of a complete breakdown in the U.S. economy due to massive inflation and a loss of confidence in the U.S. dollar, in the Federal Reserve, in this whole monetary system, that is going to be the moment where the Fed finally has to decide between these two very unpleasant alternatives. It's either going to do something to prevent hyperinflation from coming into existence 
and doing the one thing that it has resisted doing for so long, and that's acting responsibly, allowing interest rates to soar, shrinking the money supply, and allowing the whole thing to come collapsing down, or because they lack the guts, even at that point in time, to do the right thing, they just continue to print money, ignore that, and the dollar just implodes and goes the way of the Reichsmark or the Zimbabwe dollar or the Argentine peso. But either way, the dollar is going way down. The only question is how low and how fast. 